Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I would invite the congregation to please stand and turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. As we will pray and then dive into this morning's sermon. 1 Kings chapter 19. Keep your finger there. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. You word as a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Please be seated. So church, the title of this morning's sermon is How to Get Out of a Rut. And we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19. And we're going to sequentially move through all the verses in that chapter. But the first thing we have to define is what is a rut. A rut refers to a season when you feel discouraged. A rut refers to a time when you feel frustrated, run down, or crippled without hope. A rut refers to a time in your life when it seems as if everything you're doing is pointless and everything you're doing is returning to you void. Now, if I'm preaching this morning to real people who operate in real life, you may not be going through a rut right now, but you may know someone who is. And I can almost guarantee you'll be going through a rut at some point in the future. Church, the Bible is the word of truth. And that word of truth tells us that no one is Superman, and therefore, no one is invulnerable to going through ruts. In fact, what the Bible tells us is that what defines a titan of faith is not the fact that they never go through ruts, but rather, what defines a titan of faith is how they navigate out of a rut. And that's what the prophet Elijah does in 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, before we get to 1 Kings chapter 19, there's a setup to what happens. There's 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, what happens in that chapter? The prophet Elijah was literally in a high place. He was literally on top of a mountain, Mount Carmel. 
And if the Old Testament had a highlight reel, I dare say that 1 Kings chapter 18 would have a few seconds in that highlight reel. What happened there? What happened there was that the nation of Israel was under judgment. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were using their political power to sponsor idolatry. They incorporated hundreds of false prophets who were leading the people astray. And as a result of their disobedience, the land was in the midst of a drought. The land was in the midst of a famine. And people were hungry, starving, and dying. And Elijah challenges the king to have a contest of gods on the top of Mount Carmel. Hundreds of false prophets stand for false deities. And only Elijah stands for the one true God. What God then does is he validates his prophet. He validates his messenger and he sends down two signs from heaven. He sends down a fire sign. Fire literally falls from heaven and consumes the altar that Elijah made to God. And after Elijah prays, God sends, he rains down fire from heaven. And then a few moments later, God sends a water sign when he opens the heavens up. And finally, after three plus years, it begins to rain. Elijah then destroys all the false prophets, and King Ahab flees from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. That's 1 Kings 18. Then 1 Kings 19 hits, and Elijah literally now is in a low place. He's literally now in a valley. He's hungry, he's hopeless, he's depressed, he's suicidal. In other words, the prophet Elijah was in a rut. He was in a bad place. He was in a bad place so much he didn't want to bother with people anymore. He was in a bad place so much he didn't want to bother doing the things he used to do. This version of the prophet Elijah didn't want to bother with church didn't want to bother with church people, didn't want to bother speak to the pastor, didn't want to bother do anything in the godly way of living. He was in a rut. And the question now is, how did Elijah get out of it? Now, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. Now, before I begin reading, remember, at the end of chapter 18... The prophet Elijah destroys all of the false prophets. 1 Kings 19, verse 1 to 3. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And Elijah was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. How to get out of a rut, step number one. 
Don't run ahead of God. How to get out of a rut, step number one. Don't run ahead of God. Technically, this point should be how you don't get in a rut in the first place, but I love my points, and I needed seven. So point number one. (laughs) Don't run ahead of God. Up until this point in Elijah's life, He was always cared for by God. He always had specific, clear directions. God says, Elijah does. God says, Elijah goes. But now, Elijah finds himself in a situation that catches him by surprise. It catches him off balance. And now he gets unsettled because he doesn't have a clear and specific direction from God. Elijah, the queen Jezebel, sends a messenger and says, Elijah, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to wipe you out. And what Elijah now does is he immediately reacts. He has a quick, immediate, emotional, visceral reaction to the queen telling him, I'm going to take your life. And when Elijah immediately responds to that uncertainty, he doesn't follow the word of God because God never told him to run. Elijah now responds to the word of Elijah. He receives the death threat, and the first thing that he does is he runs. And in Elijah running, running away from where God had sent him, he is now running ahead of God. Now, I'm not beating up the prophet Elijah because the Bible gives us pictures of real people. I'm not looking down on the prophet saying, look what he did. I would never do that. I'm not saying that. My life has never been threatened, nor has been threatened by someone in political authority. But what I'm saying is that the best people are still people at their best. And the reason why people are at their best is because God is infusing his grace into their lives. And when God withdraws his grace, when God withdraws his power, people begin to break. People begin to be exposed to what they are, dust. People begin to realize that they are frail, that they are fragile, and they're vulnerable and will respond in visceral, emotional ways. Elijah ran from where he was called to be. You may run from a church. You may run from a job. You may run from a difficulty. You may run from a particular situation. But the point is that don't run ahead of God. Don't run away from where God has called you to be. And watch this. When Elijah immediately and emotionally reacts... He responds with what he's good at. What is he good at? Running. How do we know Elijah's good at running? Because what does he do in 1 Kings 18, 46? He outruns King Ahab. You had a king. 
using a king's chariot, using king's horses, and he goes from Carmel to Jezreel, 20 plus miles. Elijah outruns the king, meaning he was really good at running. So Elijah could have said, hey, I'm good at this. It's worked before. Why don't I try and use that skill set to solve this uncertainty? But when he does that, he ends up running away, running ahead of God. Be careful, beloved, when the temptation hits to respond with your talents, to respond with what you're good at, to an uncertainty. Be careful. It may be a temptation in disguise. Don't run ahead of God. Therefore, if you're good at talking, sometimes the best thing to do is to remain silent. If you're good at running, sometimes the best thing to do is to remain still. If you're good at doing, if you're good at executing, if you're good at crossing things off of a list, sometimes the best thing you need to do is to wait on God. And when you run ahead of God, you end up doing things that don't make any sense. Like running ahead of God. It doesn't make any sense. You're running away from grace. You're running away from omnipotence. You're running away from your heavenly Father. You're in a rut wondering, why am I in a rut? So is God. He's over there saying, hey, why'd you run ahead of me in the first place? Because grace only exists within the contours of God's will. When you run ahead of God, you do things that don't make any sense. Elijah was running away from a defeated enemy. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel had zero credibility left. They were the ones sponsoring idolatry. Now what happened? Mount Carmel happens. All the false prophets are now dead. Baal was proven to be a fraudulent liar because he doesn't exist. And now you have two defeated people making a cry for help, saying we're now going to do all we can with left, and we're going to threaten the prophet Elijah's life. But they were already finished. They were already defeated. And Elijah, in running ahead of God, was running away from a defeated enemy. So step number one is, don't run ahead of God. So if you're in a rut right now or know someone who is, consider the fact that they are where they are because they ran first and left God behind. Verses 4 to 5. But he himself, but Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. How to get out of a rut, step number two. Reevaluate your expectations. How to get out of a rut, step number two. Reevaluate your expectations. Now, it's impossible to discern 
what was going on in the prophet Elijah's mind in the text. But we can tell by what he says that he had a particular expectation in his mind about how things were supposed to play out. And there was a big gap between the expectations in his mind and reality. There was an expectation gap. And because there was an expectation gap, he was frustrated, he ran, and he says, Lord, I'm finished, I'm over, take my life because I'm a failure. Perhaps Elijah thought that after Mount Carmel, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel would say, yes, the Lord God, he really is God. Didn't happen. Perhaps Elijah thought that after Mount Carmel, everyone would think he's the greatest prophet ever and rule out a red carpet and say, Elijah, you are the best. Didn't happen. Whatever expectation Elijah had in his mind was by no means, shape, or form matched by reality. But not only did Elijah have an expectation gap, he was comparing himself to others and developing a sense of unworthiness. What does Elijah say? He says, for I am not better than my father's. Perhaps he was comparing himself to Moses. Perhaps he was comparing himself to Samuel. Perhaps he was comparing himself to Father Abraham and the titanic faith that Father Abraham once exhibited in scriptures the prophet Elijah would have access to. Now here's my question for you. Are you in a rut? When you get down and depressed, who do you compare yourself to? To someone who's prettier? To someone who's taller? To someone who has more money? To someone who has a better education? To someone who's more accomplished? To someone who's more successful? And when your reality doesn't match the comparative expectation you have in your mind, does that now give you feelings of unworthiness? Who do you compare yourself to? Let me ask another question. Are you in a rut right now? Why? Is it because of unfulfilled expectations? Where did those expectations come from? Did it come from you? Did it come from fantasy and imagination? Did it come from someone else? Did someone else or a worldly source put those expectations in your mind? Because if your expectations came from any source other than God, now it's time to reevaluate your expectations. Beloved, living by expectations means living by sight, not by faith. Living by expectations means we naturally define how we think reality is going to play out, and we are now living based upon something we can see or visualize in our heads. That's not living by faith, that's living by sight. And here's a newsflash. God's will doesn't depend on our expectations. 
Our expectations do not factor in to his efficacious will at all. And any means, any plans, any routes that we think ought to be the way things should go, we have to realize any means are useless without God behind them. Elijah prays to God and says, Lord, take my life. I'm finished. It's over. Thank goodness God did not answer that prayer request. Elijah says, I am no better than my fathers. Who told Elijah he was enrolled in a competition? Who enrolled him in a competition? He enrolled himself. God never compares you to anyone else. The body of believers is called the body of Christ. Meaning one person's an elbow, one person's a stomach. You can't compare elbows to stomachs because they're elbows and stomachs. That's worse than comparing apples and oranges. In the body of Christ, no one is in a competition. But everyone works together as a cooperative whole. Everyone's cooperating to serve our corporate head, Jesus Christ. And the only thing God expects you to be is the person he has called you specifically to be. God's not comparing you to anyone else, so why should you? Step number two is, when you're in a rut, reevaluate your expectations. Verse 5 to 8. Elijah lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Verse number 7 says, the angel of the Lord. And that's a very special phrase because whenever the Old Testament says the angel of the Lord, it's not talking about any old angel. It's talking about a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. And other places where the angel of the Lord refers to Jesus is Genesis 16.10, Exodus 3.1-4, and Judges 2.1-4. So the angel of the Lord, Jesus is the one who visits Elijah. Now, when we go to the New Testament, Jesus has many names, many titles. Son of Man, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Paraclete, Good Shepherd, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But did you also know that Jesus is a chef? Jesus, think about this for a second. Jesus, by his grace, descends from the heavens above to bring bread cakes and water to his prophet. 
He brought, God brought bread cakes and water to his prophet in need. And God did that because Elijah had physical deficiencies. Point number three. How to get out of a rut, step number three. Before, be sure to address your physical deficiencies. The angel of the Lord Jesus touches Elijah. He then feeds him. Elijah then goes to sleep. Why did all that happen? Because he was dehydrated. Because he was hungry. Because he was exhausted. Because he was isolated and needed some companionship. Elijah went through a lot in 1 Kings chapter 18. And biologically, physically, he was drained. Elijah did not need prayer or pastoral counseling. He needed to take a nap. Hello, somebody. The church is filled with spiritual people. Yay and amen. But spiritual people can oftentimes over-spiritualize things. And although we are spiritual people living in material bodies, we still have material bodies. So if you feel irritable... If you feel unwell, if you feel tired, if you're grumpy, if you're cranky, if you don't feel like going to church that morning, consider you may not need to repent. You may just need to go to bed earlier and get some more sunlight. I'm a medical doctor, so you can trust that advice. God takes our physical well-being so seriously, he programmed physical rest into time itself. The Sabbath, every day, every, the final day out of seven is a day programmed for rest. So we can do what? We can stop. We can rest. We can re-energize. We can refuel because our physical bodies sometimes simply need a break. So point number three is very simple and practical. Be sure to address your physical deficiencies. Now after this event with the angel of the Lord Jesus, Elijah then travels to Mount Horeb. Verses 9 to 10. Then he, then Elijah came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The fourth point relates to the second point. Reevaluate your expectations. How to get out of a rut, step number four. Do not underestimate sin. Point number four. Do not underestimate sin. Here in these verses, Elijah was in the lowest part of his rut. He was hopeless. How do we know he was hopeless? By what he says. 
He looks around and says, Lord, I'm the only one left. I'm down and out. I'm the only one who's been faithful to you. And now the king and queen, they want to kill me. Elijah was at his wit's end. But the fourth point is, do not underestimate sin. Let's take a step back. Mount Carmel happens. God sends down fire from heaven. God sends down fire, and it specifically consumes an altar that a prophet of God builds. It doesn't fall down on a mountain somewhere. It falls down to one specific spot. And it falls down after the man of God prays to God. So that fire, that miracle, was a crystal clear testament in real life that God is God and God is real. So the rational, logical, reasonable thing for anyone who has a brain and eyes to do and say, hey, this is crystal clear evidence that God is God and Baal and Asherah are, 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 are hocus pocus. But King Ahab and Queen Jezebel didn't respond that way. They didn't respond in a way that was rational. They didn't respond in a way that was reasonable. They responded in a way that acted contrary to the facts, contrary to the evidence. And the reason why they responded in illogical, senseless ways is because of sin. Is because sin, which we're never going to underestimate, warps our minds. It warps our senses. It warps our perception of the world and makes us do things that are not rational and don't make any sense. Listen, saved people and unsaved people both have brains. They both have neurons and medulla oblongatas in between their ears. But unsaved people have completely different minds than saved people. Everyone, ha- Figuratively speaking now, everyone has a piano as a brain, right? But a saved person has a completely different piano player playing a completely different tune. Their minds are operating in a completely different fashion. And regardless of how truly true a message is, regardless of how powerful and miraculous a miracle is, you never underestimate sin. Therefore, you never underestimate sin in others. Therefore, you never deny the fact that people respond, act, and do in crazy, senseless, illogical ways. Because some people have different minds, powerful miracles will have no effect on them. The Romans, everyone they crucified had a 100% chance of dying. The Romans crucified Jesus. Some people still deny he died. There were eyewitness testimonies of the resurrected Christ presenting himself to hundreds of people three days later. For some people, it's not good enough. No one could ever produce a body of Jesus say, hey, he really is dead. Never happened. To some people, it's still not good enough. Because some powerful miracles will have nil effect on some minds clouded by sin. So when Elijah looks out at the world and says, things don't make any sense, part of the reason was because he was underestimating just how powerful sin is to warp the minds of other people.
There's a thing called church hurt. Church hurt refers to the fact that when you're in church, people are going to hurt you. It refers to the fact that oftentimes the hurt you get in church hurts more than the hurt you get in the world. Some people act surprised. How could this happen? How could this happen in the church? It's supposed to be people of God, people who are saved, people who are generated. You only say that if you underestimate sin. The church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. So even though you're in the church, there's still going to be sin. And there's still going to be church hurt because sin never goes away. Do not underestimate sin in others. But even more important than that... Instead of turning the lens of introspection outward, you never underestimate sin in you. What does Elijah do here? He says, God, I alone am left. Think about this. A man on earth, a creature, is looking up to God saying, hey, God, I'm the only one who got it right. I'm the only one who's doing the right thing. Everyone else in the world has gotten it wrong. But me and me alone, I'm the only one left. What is that? That's a prideful assumption. Because when you never underestimate sin in yourself, you realize what sin does is it narrows your lens where now you become the center of the universe and not God. And pride begets self-pity, and that worldview animates you saying things like, I'm right, they're wrong, clearly the problem rests in everyone else but me. When sin narrows your perspective... You begin distrusting God. You begin not believing Him. And you look out at the world around you and you tell God, this can't possibly be the plan. Something had to have gone wrong somewhere. This can't be it. But we have to realize, church, All of God's plans in the Bible, they are always messy. And they are rarely neat. Look at the cross. Was the cross civil? Was the cross convenient? Was the cross painless? It was the exact opposite. It was inconvenient, it was undeserved, it was barbaric, and it was the most inhumane way of dying possible at that time. God's plans are always messy. And when you never underestimate sin, you realize there are no perfect people in a perfect world, but sinful people in a sinful world, which includes you. People will therefore do things that are not rational, that doesn't make any sense, that are self-destructive. 
It doesn't matter if the message is, wretched sinner, either you repent now, you turn, or you burn. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if that's true. Because sin will so grip and warp the minds of people, they'll shrug their shoulders and open up their favorite app. Don't underestimate sin in others. For even if fire falls from heaven, that will have nil effect on some minds. Verse 11 to 14. So God said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. How to get out of a rut, step number five. Be still, be quiet, and listen for the small, still voice. Be still, be quiet, and listen for the small, still voice. The Hebrew, I think, does it better. In English, it says, the sound of gentle blowing, but literally in Hebrew, it says, the voice of gentle silence. In verses 11 to 14, God answers his prophet Elijah. But he answers him in a subtle, gentle, discreet way. God did not answer his prophet in big, bold, and brash ways. He didn't answer him in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire. He didn't respond to his prophet in big ways. He responded in small ways, in subtle ways. When we are in a rut, we may be expecting, we may be looking for God to respond in a capital B big way. With big empathy, with big understanding, the heavens open up and thunders clash, big crowds, a big overwhelming response, big sales, big enthusiasm, big, 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 big. But how God likes to respond is subtlety, yes. is with the voice of gentle silence. In fact, if you want to get biblical, the way God always shows himself to the world is with power, is with pomp and circumstance, like ten plagues in Egypt, like fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. But when he responds to his people... 
he uses the voice of gentle silence. He reveals himself to Moses by a burning bush. He calls Samuel by saying, Samuel, Samuel. He doesn't have a heavenly army to feed the giant. He uses a little runt, a shepherd boy who didn't come to fight, who came to bring bread to his brothers. And he chooses to save the world by dying on a cross. What God was telling his prophet here in these verses is this. He was saying, Elijah, I am the God who is greater than the wind, greater than the mountains, greater than earthquakes and fire. Elijah, you may want things to work in big, bold, grand, and great ways, but that is not how God works. God not only is sovereign in the beginning, He's not only sovereign in the end, he's also sovereign in the middle. He's sovereign in the means by which things happen. And what God prefers is the small, still voice of gentle silence. And God always likes promoting his glory in ways that to the world seem small and insignificant. God was showing his prophet the weakness of power, and the power of weakness. This is what Dr. J. Oswald Sanders writes, quote, The whispers from Calvary are infinitely more potent than the thunder of Sinai in bringing men to repentance, end quote. The voice of gentle silence, subtlety. Do you know what broke the Apostle Peter's heart? A rooster crowing. Something small. Something simple. Jesus told his apostle, before the rooster crows, you will deny me. What happened? The rooster crows. Then what does Jesus do? He simply looks at him. Nothing bold. Nothing big. And that broke Peter's heart. Do you know what changes the world? Fathers, each and every morning teaching their children the Bible. Reading a Bible verse, expositing it. Fathers taking the responsibility to pray with their family each and every night. You want the world to change? It's not millions and billions of dollars on TV getting famous. It's something small, subtle, and simple. You know what changes the world? Local pastors that you've never heard about preaching and teaching faithfully Sunday after Sunday, year after year, in rinky-dink towns you never want to visit. And they swell the ranks of the kingdom of God by preaching the foolishness of the gospel. How to get out of rut, step number five, be still, be quiet, and listen for the small, still voice. When I say listen for the small, still voice, I'm not suggesting that you're audibly going to hear the voice of God. What I'm suggesting is that if you're looking for something big, you're going to miss something small. And the way to hear a voice of gentle silence is by being very, very quiet. Making sure there's no distractions. Making sure there's no background noise. Making sure you're purposefully attentive to being ready to hear the word of God. So how do you be still? 
How do you be quiet? You are still by sitting under and hearing the preached word of God. You are still by daily meditating and reading the word of God. You are still in quiet by daily praying with God and spending dedicated prayer time in your prayer closets. Because the best words from God aren't new words, they're old words. And the words you have in front of you right now, printed on paper, are the soft, gentle words of silence that speak to your soul each and every day. And when that voice of gentle silence speaks to you, what did God do for his prophet? He asks his prophet a question. And when that voice finds you, it's going to do the same. It's going to ask you a question. God said, what are you doing here? How does you being in a rut glorify God? How does you being in a rut fulfill your calling in any way, shape, or form? What's the point of the rut? But more than that, God asks Elijah a personal question. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? God gets personal. That's what God's word will do. It'll find you no matter who you are, no matter where you are. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? God said, Elijah, I called you to be a prophet. Of what good is a prophet hiding out in a cave? And when that word finds you and hits you, that word's going to transform you because no one has a real encounter with God's word and leaves that interaction unchanged. And you will not only hear that word, you will now accrue spiritual capacities to be able to hear that soft, gentle voice in your life moving forward. So even when everyone else seems deep asleep, even when no one else hears that voice of gentle silence, you begin hearing it all the time. And we always listen to what God says because he always knows what to do. So God asks Elijah a question, then he gives him a command. Verse 15 to 18. The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael, king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as a prophet in your place. It shall come about that the, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. How to get out of a rut. Step number six. Get to work. How to get out of a rut, step number six. Get to work. Get out of the cave. Get out of the rut. Get out of the gloom. Get out of the self-pity and find something to do. 
When you're in a rut, you feel worthless, you feel empty, you're apathetic. So as a result, you do nothing. And because you've gotten nothing done, you now feel more worthless and apathetic, which feeds a vicious cycle. So even if it's something as simple as making a list every morning with something to do, like wash the dishes, like take a walk, like read one Bible verse... Even if it's something that simple, if you can put a check in the box and say, I did it, you have now found something to do to pull yourself out of the rut. What does God do for Elijah? He puts him to work. He says, Elijah, the pity party's over. Go now and do. You're going to anoint two kings and you're going to anoint a prophet. How to get out of rut, step number six, is you get to work. We get to work knowing that we can never do everything. There's a lot of work to be done. And one person with a finite life can never do everything. But we get to work knowing that God's work still continues even when the workers are dead. Our work is finite and contained, but God's work is cosmic. We get to work knowing that God doesn't actually need any one person. God could actually find someone else. God could have turned his back on his prophet in the cave, but he doesn't because he's the God of grace. So we get to work knowing that it's a privilege, it's an honor to work for the glory of God, and we get to work now, today, knowing that tomorrow is not guaranteed. Today, right now, is always God's day. Tomorrow is always the devil's day. You get to work knowing that other people are depending on you. When Elijah was in his rut in the cave, he had no idea that God was going to use him for other people. He had no idea he was going to be used to anoint two kings and a prophet, meaning he had a calling that transcended himself. And Elijah didn't have the vision to see that God was going to use him to touch and influence the lives of other people. And the two kings and the prophet Elijah, when Elijah was in the cave, he hadn't met them yet. So you get to work realizing when you work and you labor and you do now, you're working and laboring for people you don't even know exist yet. You get to work knowing your calling always transcends you. Do you know who needed a prophet while Elijah was in the cave? The people of Israel. The 7,000 that were God. All the people on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 who fell down and said, The Lord, He is God. They now needed a man of God to faithfully communicate God's word to them. You get to work knowing that weeping over the past solves nothing. Running from the present accomplishes nothing. Get to work knowing that time is short, that right now counts forever, and others will not prepare themselves. We get to work, beloved, knowing that God cannot fail. And when you work for God... You cannot fail, 
because you are doing his purposes. Now we've addressed the conflict within for the prophet Elijah, but there's still one thing to consider. The fact that at the beginning of 1 Kings 19, what got Elijah in this mess in the first place was that Queen Jezebel threatened to kill him. Beloved, when we get to work and we faithfully act in labor for God, it doesn't matter if there are death threats, it doesn't matter if there are persecutions, it doesn't matter if there's spiritual, political, economic, or social violence. Like the prophet Elijah, you are immortal until your work for God is finished. It doesn't matter who threatens your life. You are immortal until God's work with your life is done. Therefore, we get to work knowing we cannot fail because God never fails. And then in verses 19 to 21, Elijah gets to work. He gets to work with renewed calling, with renewed purpose, and renewed hope in his maker. I'll close by saying this. The next time you find yourself under a juniper tree, or in a cave, or in a ditch, in a rut, Remember one simple fact. Stop looking at your own weaknesses and failures and start looking at God's greatness and power. The last step is this, how to get out of a rut. Step number seven, remember the resurrection. Remember the resurrection. In Elijah's day, there was a miracle, fire from heaven, Mount Carmel that people did not respond to. But Elijah's hope was that, in spite of what he saw with his natural eyes, God was still at work. For there are more heavenly forces than there are natural forces. And although Elijah was in a cave, God was the one who brought him out. Elijah could look forward to the coming Messiah, we look back both to the Elijah narrative and to Calvary and to the cross. And now in our day, there's a miracle people still do not respond to. They still do not respond to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But our hope is that in spite of what we see in the church, in the world, in relationships at work, that God is still at work. And he is still doing that which is imperceptible to our eyes. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Looking at our Lord and Savior on the cross, it would seem as if he was having the ultimate bad day, that he was in a rut, that somehow God's plan was foiled. But after he went down to the low, low place in the grave, three days later, He resurrected. He came back from the dead. And God's plan was always going according to plan. 
God vindicated his son because God never fails. God is not a God of in the cave ruts church. God is a God of out of the tomb resurrections. So you remember the resurrection. You remember the redeeming grace and dying love of Jesus Christ. You remember that our Redeemer lives not so that you can be static in a cave, but so that you can live and have life and get to work for Christ. You remember the resurrection knowing. You may be looking at the cross saying, this can't be the plan. But you know how the story ends with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection proves the plan may be messy, the plan may be hard, the plan may be arduous, but you remember the resurrection knowing that God never fails. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for narratives such as those found in 1 Kings 19, which tell us clearly and plainly that walking the life of faith, your servants will encounter low points. They will encounter ruts. They will endure times when they are frustrated, hopeless, and everything seems black with despair. But each and every morning, your graces are new, and the resurrection of our Lord proves to us that you, Lord God, never fail. And we cling tightly to the hem of your garment, Lord Jesus, knowing that you are the one who has ordained your children, your servants, to work for you, to be laborers in your kingdom, to be laborers in your vineyard, knowing that the end is already written and that end ends in glory. That end ends in victory. For those who are with us are more than those that are with them. Our Lord and our God, we bless you, we love you, and we rejoice and the richness and delight in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit wcsk.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.